Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad... To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai. This week's episode of Screen Talk is brought to you by Amazon Studios, presenting Time, now nominated for an Academy Award for Best Documentary Feature and hailed by IndieWire as the most essential documentary of 2020. Time is the most honored documentary of the year, winner of Best Documentary by the Gotham Awards, National Board of Review, Los Angeles Film Critics, National Society of Film Critics, and winner of two IDA awards, including Best Director Garrett Bradley. Time is streaming on Prime Video. Welcome to Screen Talk, IndieWire's weekly movie podcast. I'm Eric Cohn, the executive editor-in-chief critic, joined as always by Ann Thompson, our editor-at-large. And in this very long Oscar season, we are in some of the final phases here, but there's still plenty to talk about, recapping SAG, other kinds of stuff that's going on with various frontrunners and so forth. But first, you were on sort of the front lines this past week at the Santa Barbara Film Festival, so to speak, uh, as a moderator. So how did it go out there for that stage of, of the, the usual award season shuffle? So, some things never change. Yeah, no, uh, instead of, uh, actually, I am going to be going up there today. Um, I'm going to go up there and do uh, a tribute to Delroy Lindo, um, which a I'm real life in person thing. Yeah, That's no, wild. no, it's weird. No? They're putting me in They're put the sort of they're, they're not you don't get paid to do these things. It's a lot. It's actually a lot of work. Journalistic a, integrity. Know, that's right. And so so they they put me up at the El Encanto Hotel and uh, and, you know, buy me dinner. Uh, but they're 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 going to make me look good in the hotel. They're going to you know, so you don't have to look at my stupid office anymore. Um, and it looks like you everybody looks office. the same. They have Leonard Malton up there. They have Pete Hammond. They have Scott Feinberg. You know, we're the gang, the gang of moderators at the Santa Barbara Film Festival. But and the I talent, always do. You're saying the talent is not two. there. No, no, nobody's there. Um, so, the, so the there is festival an festival director element, but... is there. Uh, yeah, okay, they're so that's just something. moving. Yeah, they're making me so change my location. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and then and no, but I'll be remote. I'll still be remote as uh, they've just they're just going to set up a, a remote like, from up Santa in my Barbara. Hotel. Well, that's yeah, worth something. Yeah. And then you no, know, I went and last weekend digitally we did the writers panel, which is my favorite panel every year. It starts with the script, and we had every single nominated person. You know, wow. from from Emerald Fennell to Chloe Zhao and Aaron Sorkin and and uh, you know Darius Martyr, who well, no actually one wants sort to... of charmed. He was very charming. He he, he kind of took over character. the panel. It's uh, funny though because nobody wants to be the one that didn't show up, so they all have to. That's they the did way the exactly works. Yeah. exactly. There was one who wasn't going to be there, and and the publicist said, "Why haven't you asked this one?" And we said, "We did." <laughs> uh, yeah. So we so that was really great. And there are a lot of writer directors and and you know Kemp Powers and it was really and the two Lucas brothers who are hilarious. Uh, the guys who came up with the idea for Judas and the Black Messiah. The, the idea that there was an FBI informant versus Fred Hampton, who was responsible for bringing him down. Right. That's, was that's their sort of idea. the central concept of the movie. Yeah. And it's how Very they turned it into a more commercial kind of, of uh, you know, thriller as opposed to a biopic. 
Right. Um, Which is what, yeah, it's a great. And that's point. why it's so accessible. That's why it's so, uh, so much more, uh, fun for people in a way, even if it's a tough story, uh, it, it, it's inside the bucket of, uh, you know, the trappings of an FBI thriller. But how are the how are the front runners doing? How is somebody like Chloe Zhao who's had to be in promotional mode? You know, it's it's fascinating. This is a time of year where the even the the great artists start to show the wear and tear of having to repeat themselves and do all this work they don't necessarily want to do promoting themselves. So how did that go? I would say that they're all happy to be in the story. And Zhao has kept her appearances to, to uh, a reasonable, a low roar. I mean, she hasn't been uh, as ubiquitous as someone like Aaron Sorkin, um, where I really literally had trouble coming up with a question that he hadn't already <laughs> answered at some point, you know, I'm sure um, he could take it all in stride. He did. Sort of he always does. Type. He always does. But Zhao told a story that I loved, which was the, um, which I it may, other people may have heard this before, but I hadn't. Uh, the idea that when she was doing location scouting and went to the town, uh, the deserted town uh, that the Francis McDormand character uh, leaves at the beginning, um, that she was location scouting and found the house that she actually ended up using uh, in the movie and, you know, walked around, opened the back door, looked out at that vista, at, like the scene the in scenery. the movie. <laughs> yeah. And she created the whole screenplay around the idea that that was the last scene of the movie. That's wow. how she adapted the book. Well, that's, that's great. She so you look knew at, um, where she was going. It's funny. I mean, this is a very, people talk about Nomadland not necessarily having, you know, a, a big plot driven element going for it, but it actually is in a very subtle way, a classical piece of storytelling. I mean, you look at the Sid Field approach to screenplay where it's like, know how your movie ends first and then build it out from there. And it that's does what she did. Like that's a great, great case study in that sense. And she used the, as you say, she used the exact location and, but it was the framing device for the movie and, and the movie is written. She's very smart, Chloe Zhao. I mean, this is not what's not, you know, this goes without saying, but I mean, in the sense that when she's talking on the circuit, she gives you a very good sense of genuine authenticity that that is not faked. And and she comes up with new, she comes up with new, very succinct, very pithy ways of saying things. I'm always interested in what she's saying. That's the hardest thing, I think, for really talented filmmakers to to learn. And it's significant, I think, that this is her third feature, right? I mean, she's a very particular director. There's an auteurist sensibility coursing through her work, if you look at all three films. But it's hard for people with such a precise vision to figure out how to distill that into the the media process of explaining yourself. And I assume that the first film and then especially the second film with the writer sort of helped her understand how to explain that to people in a way that doesn't just, you know, make their eyes glaze over or whatever. But I'm also going to say something else. She gives the impression at least of being very happy. I mean, she's in a great place. At this this time of the season, my God. She has nothing to be unhappy about. (laughs) You know, she's got Marvel uh, Eternals coming up. She's the the China backlash. She's about to break records and win like three, three Oscars, you know, assuming she, she gets all the, she could win four, but um We'll see. But Nomadland is in very good shape to be the winner of right. at least picture and director. And this coming weekend, we have the DGA, which is well, before which we get Zhao into is that. expected to win. But let's talk about SAG for a second, because that's that that's behind us. And what I saw the word 
upset used with SAG a few times in stories. And I thought that was curious because, yes, trial won the top prize, but Nomadland wasn't even nominated. So if you looked at the films upset that were nominated, wasn't used. I mean, the, the, some the, people said it. I mean, no, not about won the, anything not about what won the ensemble award. I mean, because that was between Minari and Trial of yeah, Chicago 7 by sense. default, because there yeah. were three movies that were not even nominated for Best Picture exactly. in the running. Including what was surprising, runner. perhaps, was Viola Davis winning Best Actress. That's where the upset occurred. Although some people argued with me that 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 wasn't an upset yeah, either. I would question that too. I mean, it could be, I mean, we, we, she certainly, if there was going to be an upset, it would be that one, right? I mean, she's, she's widely beloved. It is a powerful performance and it's been talked about. Well, right now, she's probably going to win Best Actress on that basis. But we didn't know that. We didn't know that because Ma Rainey has been failing. Ma Rainey has been slipping. It hasn't been winning things, it didn't make Best Picture. So you can see that the support for Ma Rainey actually is with the actors and the makeup branch. It's probably going to win makeup. It could be costumes. Um, and you can see what I'm figuring out um, as I'm talking to more Academy members is that they are really tuned out. They have missed a lot of the movies. I'm shocked, actually. Usually by this point in the process, they've caught up with just about everything. Anything really they should have seen. Because it's, there's such would, a wide range of films at stake this year, and being an informed voter in some ways has never been more valuable than a year. They like don't this care. Month. A lot of them. I'm not saying this is true of everyone, but I can tell you that the people I spoke to just this week are people who are usually very engaged, usually 100% in the mix, totally passionate, you know, totally committed. Both of these people were largely checked out. And, and I and suppose hardly seen the films from this anecdotal evidence. One one could argue that the most aggressive campaigning could be even more effective than usual this year because no, people are reliant. No, because what I'm saying is if they're if they're not if they're totally checked out, then they're probably more likely to notice things that are being thrust their way than to do what's the heavy work of really paying attention. What's really clear to me is that even what you and I take for granted as journalists. What, what I, I've been aware of this for a while. Journalists are way ahead of the Academy most of the time in terms of the movies they've seen, oh, sure. in terms of, of the awareness of the That's stories behind the movies. Yeah. We've been we tracking this for a long time. And usually and we it takes a while. For the, that's our job. Usually it takes a while for the Academy members to, to catch up. This year, a lot of them don't have Roku. A lot of them don't have Apple TV. A lot of them barely have smart TVs. A lot of them are spoiled rotten by having all of the, uh, the, the stuff just thrown at them that they don't have to go out and look for it. Right. So and, the stuff and the that's screeners, most readily accessible. And, and if you didn't have access, if you didn't have uh, the ability to get onto the Academy portal, which is, and you don't yeah. want to watch movies on your laptop, You're you screwed. didn't see Tenet. You, just you didn't, didn't see you didn't <laughs> oh, <no>. see <laughs> any number of things uh, because they weren't well, available. To, if, you didn't, if you didn't get biggest. it together to get HBO Max, if it, which a lot of people still haven't done. Right. So maybe that's um, a, ju a hit against if you Judas. didn't sign on to Disney Plus. You didn't see Saul. Mm -hmm. Think about that. If you mm -hmm. didn't sign on to to uh, HBO Max, maybe if they sent you the screener. You saw Judas, maybe. So it was an interesting question. I mean, with something like Soul, it's like, okay, 
they might vote people might vote for that one anyway because it's the pixar movie if, because if they didn't see wolf walkers either which is you know they need apple for that what but became maybe painfully... that's why it didn't get screenplay i mean that's, that's what, what became argument. well that is a good point eric actually yeah, that that's, is a that's very sort good of point i'm trying to i think a lot of people didn't saying. see my rainy i think a lot of for best picture voting i mean i think a lot of people didn't see uh i think maybe what's going on is that the guilds m maybe they they were ahead of the actual academy i mean it's like it, they were it was important to them to track the movies that that were the best of the year in their field right but but the yeah. but oh my god i i was actually kind of taken aback um by some of the things i've been learning this well this week. is a weird season no matter how much we dig into the nature of this being a weird season i i'm sure people will be surprised there will be an internet backlash of sorts when things happen that seem off like when octopus teacher potentially wins best documentary and people on Twitter who realize that time is a better movie or collective become pissed off about it. They're let's not remember, looking at the things you're looking at. So let's remember that critics love time and critics admire time. And I do too, for all the ways that it plays with the genre and, and doesn't give you the answers that you expect to get, because that's not the story she wanted to tell Garrett Bradley, but there are a lot of people who want those answers in a conventional structured documentary. Remember that. Well, let's, uh, let's dig problem. into this one. Let's just a little detour on this. Cause you were writing about it this week. Uh, the hashtag stop the octopus is not trending right now, but maybe it should be. You wish it would. <laughs> I, I don't want to. I, I mean, look, I'm sure the filmmakers are sincere in, in the story that they captured, which is a very sensitive study of this guy either having a midlife crisis or an erotic fixation on this uh, cephalopod. But uh, I do think that the challenge with this movie is that it happens to be I, I'm OK with. A, a lesser movie winning an Oscar conceptually that that's just the nature of the game but it happens to be happening in a category in which three at least three of these movies I think are some of the best movies of 2020 with collective mole agent I agree time. with you so it doesn't I agree have to be with this you one. Eric Look it does have to be this one I mean, not because on. it's the best one but because it's the one that touched people during the pandemic it's the one they feel passionately about it's the one that that, guy, that, that sure. actually um, you know actually uh, broke their hearts and made them feel better about themselves and made them feel like they were I mole think it agent has to do... make you feel better about yourself and I break couldn't your agree more and I tried I, I even <laughs> I'm always selling them all agent believe me um and selling collective and selling crip camp uh these are movies I really really care about and I think they're and time I think they're all better than my octopus teacher they are because my octopus teacher is a really enjoyable uh lovable um, um, you know, heartbreaking uh, movie. Disingenuous it, single source movie that throws science out manipulative. the window. I don't think it does actually. When I interviewed the filmmakers, I, I, I queried them. Um, I gave them some, you know, they had to answer why the, they thought that Craig Foster understood the motivations of this octopus. How could he possibly know? And their answer to that was that it was his, um, 
interpretation and that they were telling the story from his point of view. The interview that makes the whole thing work is the structure that they hang the story on. Yeah, but they I find did, that to be the problem of the movie is that that it, you that can argue that it's, oh, it's heavy handed. It's heavy handed. No, but reductive. I will say that they went and checked with the scientists. They even checked with an octopus psychologist and not, they insist that none of the interpretations that Craig Foster makes as to the behavior of the octopus, uh, they are not scientifically uh, impossible. <laughs> Wait, that, that, that's a bit of a stretch. I mean, it's they're, fine. In fact, it's, they're it's scientifically the, possible. They it's are. It's more about the terms in which he describes and the anthropomorphic aspect. I of agree it. with you. Anyway, I had the same there, issue. There is one category where I, where I think it's, I'd, I'd love to see it. I mean, certainly if, if collective upsets in international, that would be a fascinating situation. But another round, man, you, you got like some heavy hitting filmmakers to talk about that movie this week. The love is in the air for that movie. And I think that's awesome. That's a great, it that's a really you, great one. To, to absolutely. Have it helps you to see how the director's branch ended up nominating Thomas Vinterberg. That was an upset. And, uh, um, you know, it means that another round is in pretty good shape uh, to win uh, international feature. But for him to get director two was a big surprise. Although that branch often does put, um, you it's know, happened. the odd Michael Haneke, uh, Pavel Pedro Almodovar, you know, they, they go with international. It's a very internationally based um, uh, branch of the Academy. But it was so much fun. This is the most fun I've had in a long time. We had Guillermo del Toro and um, uh, Mira Nair and Luca Guadagnino uh, joining uh, Thomas Vinterberg. And they were throwing a lot of love at him. Uh, and you could see how much respect they had. And it was ever since Festin or a celebration, as some of you may know it. And uh, it was a, it was I, I just sat back and and uh, watched them go at it. It was really fun. It's a, it's yeah, a good movie. Those. It's a much more difficult movie than it looks to pull off. I think. Yeah. And it, I love those kinds of conversations where it's like a bunch of people who do the same thing, just geek out together. And you realize yes. as, as a journalist, you could just like step out you know, like, OK, they've, they've got it here. We like I mean, panels like that. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's funny because uh, the other end of the equation, I moderated a, a, an official Academy Q&A of sorts this past week. I don't want to say for, for which which film, but it was it was an interesting experience because it was basically on Zoom with a bunch of it was uh, mostly actors. But it was like, instead of instead of moderating a conversation, I was sort of facilitating it with the other people in the room. So anyone could kind of unmute themselves and be a part of the conversation. So they were trying to recreate an aspect of, you know, an Academy Mixer event. But because it was on Zoom, they, they thought, you know, OK, so we should have some sort of moderator in the room also to keep an eye on time and stuff. But you know, people were cutting in like there was one actress who just really wanted to ask all the questions and she would just go to town and then other people didn't really know. And then they had all their questions. Of course, they thought of at the very end when we ran out of time. And it was it was just really interesting. I mean, some 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 good stuff came out of it, but to, to try to rein that in because, you know, everyone just wanted to geek out together. And this format can be difficult for that, which leads into something else that I think we should talk about because of our live session last week. We didn't get a chance to return to the Academy Zooms thing, which 
I was I was sort of in favor of this idea of of saying no zooms for speeches just because I, I thought, okay, so they're they're gonna try to make they're gonna try to control the style of the award show in a way that doesn't look cheap and, and isn't subject to technical failures and all this other stuff. So it sounds like there as you said, there's some dispensation going on on the Zooms front that they may allow some of that, but we still don't really know exactly what that means because they also want to have options for people who can't travel from Europe in Paris and London. Yeah. So they're going to do an, uh, they're going to do an updated uh, press conference uh, with the producers uh, next week. Um, so I'm very curious to see how that goes. Um, and they've been, um, you can see that what they're trying to do is uh, if I were over at the Academy right now, I would be, a little bit desperate. Yeah. Because, because the, the things I'm saying about how checked out people are, there was a story in the AP about, is this going to be the lowest rated, most ignored (laughs) Academy Awards ever? And it it could be, you know, there are a lot of movies right now in, in the conversation that you and I admire and, and revere, but they're not really, um, there is no sense of, of people just being passionately uh, invested in what these movies are and, and who's going to win. And I would suggest um, uh, the opposite. And, and so the people who are putting on the show are desperate to give us a reason to watch it, to, to think it's not just another Zoom show, yeah, to think, I think it's not just going to be a recreation of all these. I, I mean, I watched the African-American Film Critics Awards last night, and it was charming, and Viola was given uh, an award, and she was great, and George C. Wolfe was given an award, and he and you was wouldn't great. expect you know. most of America to tune into that. From no, their- no. Right. And, and, and you know, I, I, I enjoyed it, but... And, and I'm, I, I get a kick out of out of uh, Daniel Kaluuya every time because he's he's like Chloe Zhao. He's always genuine. He never reads a speech. But uh, that's a secret that a lot of them should try to, to follow. Yeah. But uh, the Oscars themselves, Union Station, uh, trying to convince the actors they're going to be safe, what the protocols are going to be. Um, moving people in and out of uh, spaces on a rotating basis. Uh, there's going to be like a place where they're sitting watching a show and then with, you know, distanced and we don't know about masks yet. And then there's going to be another space where they get to hang out and have a cocktail party, which I think right. if, he if said, if bring it, the masks. That would bring be your fun. Masks. That's right. Well, see, well, I, um, I think there's two different things though that, that we're talking about here. One is the experience of the nominees and how they choose to accommodate that and, and utilize their presence for the broadcast and then there's making the broadcast compelling and the question is does does is one entirely reliant on the other in other words i think it is i think they've figured out that getting people shoulder to not shoulder to shoulder literally but getting them in the the same room room, looking at each other is the secret of the oscars and always has been what do we care about what's on the stage well we care about meryl streep and the selfie and right people reacting to to the big moment with moonlight and la la land we want the reaction to that but Moonlight and La La Land, I mean, you can't manufacture something like that. You can manufacture, like you say, like a Meryl Streep selfie moment. And the question is, what's the equivalent of that this year? They're trying to really get as know. close to that as they can. And I don't think I don't think they're going to get to it as close to it as they want to, because the travel restrictions, as you said, in Europe are punitive right now. And you can't ask people of, to do that. I, so I they're setting that, up hubs but, in Paris and London yeah, and getting and we'll pe- trying to goes. get people to come to those. It's not like the situation in Paris is particularly great for 
border no, crossing I, I right now. No, I bet they abandoned Paris. <laughs> but but no, I was going to say, I mean, why did people tune in to the inauguration special hosted by Tom Hanks and so forth? I mean, it, it's like, I think if, if the best shot for this thing from a rating standpoint is that we need some messaging that this is, this is a show that you need to watch or that you would enjoy watching, not because you've seen the movies, but because of seeing some people perform or some kind of familiar faces or some sort of an event or experience. Can you cut a good trailer? Just give us it's something. It's never the show, Eric. It's never the but show. That's their best it's bet at always, this point. It, there's nothing they can do at this point. The, the, the movies are always the driver of audience participation on, in the Oscars. It's when it's Titanic. It's when it's Lord of the Rings. That's the way it's, it's been. It's I the way it's that. always but been. I'm saying if there was some something to do here, it would have to be about messaging that this is a show worth watching for some other reason because but there's we something know these else going on. There's something else going on with the Oscars, and I we I, and I, and I, I, I I'm I'm coming up with this for the first time, and and forgive me if I'm not entirely um, articulate it. about it, but um, and I don't need your help talking me through Let's it. See. But uh, this is where this is what I want to say. I want to think that the problems with the Mar movie, uh, the. The Hollywood problems that have been revealed by the pandemic that have to do with the theaters, I can't help but realize that so many of the movies that are good enough to be at the Oscars haven't been tuned into and haven't been experienced and haven't been talked about because they haven't been in theaters enough and they weren't given the proper platform and they didn't have all the buzz that goes around a theatrical release. And I think that the problems in the movie industry itself have been brought into relief here too, in the sense that, no that they don't they don't really um, make the movies the way they used to. They don't really uh, they're, they're they're shifting their platforms. They're shifting the way that they show them. They're abandoning in many ways uh, theaters. We'll see how temporary that is and how permanent that is. And I think that the Oscars have been impacted by that. But the Oscars were on a downslope anyway in terms of audience participation mm -hmm. it had become a we blue kind of politically correct kind of oscars that a lot of people complain about i believe in all of the uh themes and uh all of the things that that uh liberal Democrats believe in. But I also understand that while, while pursuing all of that and sending those messages, they have, they have alienated a great big portion of the American public who might want to go to the movies, but don't want to go to the Oscars. Well, I think that that's but culturally what you're hitting on is a bigger imperative for the industry also to make the movies that have resonated with the Academy, like A Parasite, for example, to somehow cross over and have a bigger resonance with, with a society that might not notice those movies because they have a different set of values that drives the kinds of things that they do as passive viewers. So that's that's a bigger systematic problem than, than the Oscars or even the film industry itself, but it's certainly one that is worth sussing out and, and um, shows you that there is, as ever, a disconnect between Hollywood and the rest of this country. And, that's why um, I remain we'll sort happens. of moved by Borat. I, I remain moved by that because he was really genuinely trying to figure out a way to make a movie. It's a Trojan horse. Would connect with everyone yeah. and, and reach and it, everyone it and show people the best of humanity. And I loved that that clip you did with uh, Maria Bakalova and, and the babysitter, and Janice, Janice yeah. Jones. That was amazing. Yeah. yeah, people should look that up if they didn't see it. 
So I was moved uh, by it actually. I thought it was really interesting that she's playing a part. She was playing a part and she felt uh, moved by this woman who was so much nicer and more humane and generous than she ever would have expected her to be. Yeah. And they only shot for a day together, but I think something about the nature of that dynamic and not being able to reveal her real self in it, it, it enhanced the emotional connection that happened there because she, she had to lie and yet was still receiving generosity from this woman. And, you know, Janice, I think has come around to realize it's, it's such a strange thing. You can't imagine what that's like realizing you're in a movie without uh, understanding it. But I think that because of the, the underlying intentions of it, it seems, it seems like she has accepted what it is. And that that's an amazing thing to see. It's so it was interesting, I have to say, because level. it also it also reveals the challenge and the difficulty of what she was trying to do and and what the whole movie was trying to do. I think I think very few people I talked to the Borat writers this week also. So very few people recognize the the real challenge that went into making that movie. It, it, when I asked the writers if they wanted to make Borat three at the end, uh, and Sasha Baron Cohen, they all looked like they got hit by uh, a truck. They all looked like they were experiencing PTSD. Like but they you know, would never do writers, it. One of those writers was working on Who is America? And you could argue that with that show, Sasha was making variations of what Borat 2 did each week. I mean, it's this is activism in the guise of satire or using satire as activism. It just happens to have a kind of a lowbrow feel to it, which is really why it ends up crossing over in a really amazing way. So there's a lot you can glean from, from that approach in general. And maybe it'll make a difference for other comics and comedic storytellers that a movie like this could get Oscar nominations and this kind of appreciation and so forth. So, well, if you get uh, down to it, I think what he really cared about, as you said all along, was maybe having an impact on the election. In the short time that we have left, I think we should circle back with one major movie theater story that we just haven't had enough time to dig into. And that is, of course, Godzilla versus Kong, which <laughs> I favorite. saw at home. My favorite movie. <laughs> I, I, I felt within the first 10 seconds, I I should be seeing this in IMAX. I don't know why I'm not seeing this in IMAX. And is it even worth it not to see it in IMAX? And I can't say it really was. I did enjoy the fight at the end. The lighting off of the, off of the Tokyo skyscrapers and so forth was beautiful. I found the movie overall to be Weren't they in pretty... Hong Kong? Hong Kong, thank you. Uh, but, you know, the same kind of thing, those neon lights and the, and the all that kind of stuff. The CGI certainly delivered. I, I found it just kind of dull overall and not very innovative in terms of what it could do. I mean, you have this whole sequence, and I'm not, I doubt I'm spoiling because I'm sure people who care have already seen it, where, where Kong is in, you know, in, the, in a different Earth under in the, at the core of our Earth, basically, where there's all this crazy gravity the stuff hollow happening. Earth, the hollow yeah. Earth, right? So you're a bigger fangirl than I am, but he escapes that hollow Earth for the battle, there's no battle in that. All he does is go to the hollow earth and have some mopey moment where he remembers his family. And then he has to go above ground to have the fight. He should have dragged Godzilla back into that thing where it's like the rules are all crazy. And then well, you at least have good in action. the last, 
in the least in the last five, here's the thing. Um, the, the movie is totally set up as Team Kong. And if you're a VFX uh, aficionado, you, you will recognize how well Kong is, is done. I mean, it's extraordinary what they did with him. And the way that they used the sort of um, world wrestling uh, moves uh, for the fights with the two. I mean, we recognize the moves that they are using in their fights, which I don't think they've ever done that before. Um, so they, that makes him even more... Um, anthropomorphized we're identifying with him mm -hmm. as a warm mammal who has feelings Just like cares for the little teacher. girl <laughs> that's right exactly right and it all and makes Godzilla is a cold-blooded reptile who thrives underwater right so in the very Apparently. first my favorite scene is actually the first fight where kong is chained to the boat and the ship um, and he has he gets pulled down and goes down to, to fight Godzilla, but he has to get rid of all the chains and Alexander Skarsgård has to dive under and release the locks uh, and, and let him out and and they go at it. But Kong has to breathe. Kong is a mammal. That's part of our identification with him. So, yeah. so I, I'm rooting for him all the way. And his and, name uh, comes first. Everybody roots for Kong first. But the movie kind of plays with that dynamic in a way that I thought was isn't it Godzilla versus it, Kong? Yeah, but but I mean, at the end of the day, it's I mean, everybody roots for Kong. Of course, I mean, it's like it's the I, the nature of it. Godzilla generally Here's is seen as a threat. I mean, I spoke about this before, but just seeing it on the big screen made such a big difference. It the, the whole thing envelops you. You're caught up right. in it. You're escaping into it. And and uh, you I highly recommend seeing some it of the in the theater. I can't imagine watching that movie on TV. Yeah. I just can't. Some of it was just I, I mean, also, I think it's interesting how it, it treats the universe, the monster versus like Star Wars or something like there's so much plot going on. That's totally irrelevant to why anyone would care. And about that whole subplot here. with the kids and and uh, Brian Terry know, Henry's it, character yeah, yeah, is yeah, like yeah. a yeah. conspiratorial podcast host. There, I can't that, even those, hear what they were saying a lot of times. And how they end up in the hollow earth was crazy. But Wingard, uh, the director, understood perfectly well where the set pieces were and that, that it was all about those. Yeah, I mean, I almost wonder how much he directed it versus CGI people. I couldn't really discern the, you know, I've enjoyed. There's actually a really past, good commentary but... on uh, the New York Times site there. You know, he goes, oh, you'll see. Go, go, go watch it. It's cool. Their anatomy of the scene feature. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just I mean, it's it's just fascinating to me when when directors who have made these really entertaining movies on a smaller scale. I love your next. The guest is pretty fun. I didn't see that. I saw the guest. That was well done. Maybe. Maybe he figured out some some ways of using the art of CGI to do some innovative things, but I, I just didn't see the same sort of spark of ingenuity that I saw in those films. And that's always what's challenging on this scale is how do you how do you even get that in there? Where is there room for that in the frame? When what I really was in a theater the where everyone was cheering and applauding and it, that it felt good. I might have cheered at certain points, too. That part is fun. I'm going to go to the movies next week. I'm fully vaxxed by next Friday. I'm trying to figure out, is it going to be Tarkovsky's The Mirror? Or is it going to be <laughs> Minari, which form. I haven't seen on screen <laughs> since last Sunday? So maybe I'll do both. I'll do a double bill and mix it all up. In any case, so next week, we'll have a chance to talk about BAFTAs, which should be interesting as another aspect of this, the British Academy. That is also this weekend. 
and uh, we're gonna try to watch the short films. We've got we've got a blind spot. I'm getting there. These. I'm getting so, there. I'm catching up. One step at a time. Well, Anne, I hope you enjoy your semi-virtual experience up in Santa Barbara, and uh, thank you. Have fun up there, and, and I'll see you next week. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad. To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai.